for beings with awareness of time and of the present as opposed to the future and the past, every moment seems to carry an element of nothingness within itself. Every instant is irretrievably gone before we know it. Time in this sense, Sartre observes, separates me from myself, from what I have been, from what I wish to be, from what I wish to do, from things and from others. When understood as the steady transformation of potential future into actual past by reference to a dynamic human perspective, fixated on the present, time brings everything to an end in every single moment. It may seem to dissolve the world into, into an infinite dust of instants. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. But if not, if you could perhaps leave us a review on iTunes, either way, we'd certainly appreciate it. But today, Taylor and I are very pleased to bring our guest, Espen Hammer. Espen's main interests include Kant, German idealism, social and political philosophy, modern European philosophy, and phenomenology. Some of the works he has completed are Adorno's Modernism, Art, Experience, and Catastrophe, Adorno and the Political, Thinking the Political, and of course, today's topic of discussion, philosophy and temporality from Kant to critical theory. So Espen, thank you so much for joining us. And I have to say, what an amazing name. It's almost as cool as Cooper Cherry. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think it's better, to be quite honest. Anyhow, you welcome. welcome to... <laughs> name. You don't know my dad's name. <laughs> what's your, what's dad's, your name? dad's name? It is, in fact, Thor Hammer. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Incredible. My, actually, my dad's name is also Cooper. So, <laughs> well, Thor Hammer, that's, so, I, I feel like that's just almost too good. It, right. It's, yeah, uh, it's powerful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's philosophizing with a hammer. Well, no, of course. <laughs> yes. Philosophizing with a hammer is, is, I, I'm sure that, I'm sure, Absolutely. I'm sure, Espen, you've heard that one before or thought about that one. That's right? my motto. Yeah. No, there you go. Exactly. Espen, I know you've edited a, a number of works too, some of which, uh, some of them you, you reference in the book, particularly on, on German idealism. And I, I guess I just, just I was curious about, before we ask you about your origin story, because we do like to ask uh, right. our, our guests about sort of how they got into philosophy and all of that. Before you do that, and, and I'll, I'll give you a second to think about maybe something interesting you can, can tell our audience about just what it was for you that got you into philosophy. I just wanted to know on a technical level, what, what goes into editing volumes? Do you go to a press and kind of say, I have this idea or are you contacted and, and sort of told to be in charge of this? Or is it kind of 
something in between that? I think both. I mean, sometimes yeah. you get in touch with publishers, editors, and you have a conversation with them, and uh, people start tossing up ideas. Right. And um, you realize this might be a project worth undertaking. That was the case with the um, volume on um, idealism from 2005. Mm -hmm. I also co-edited a couple of volumes on critical theory on the Frankfurt School and on Adorno. And um, they were also the result of a kind of a certain while of conversations with editors who yeah. became interested. It's a little hard for me to say exactly which side initiated the idea first. Right. But, uh, conversations but i find editing volumes to be i mean it can be a lot of work but it's also an, an i find it an incredibly interesting and rewarding type of activity like yeah. you really get to work with other philosophers very closely over a long time and it's it's stimulating i find intellectually i mean you can imagine it's kind of like an extension of of a conference type format if you think about it it's it's taking that further formalizing it and also putting it in a format that can take it outside of that spatio-temporal instantaneity and and allow others to participate and and learn from what may not be further disseminated so i think that it's it's a really undervalued or at least maybe perhaps underappreciated aspect of various whatever discipline is consi under consideration you know editing these volumes as you said it it may take a little bit of work you may not get a lot of love for it but and i think in that sense it reminds me a little bit of translation too right it may be you know you know you may, you may not get all the the praise and whatnot but you, you still help to bring these thoughts to a wider audience that may not otherwise be able to participate and join that chorus of scholarly voices. Absolutely. And obviously, as you know, many of these volumes have an origin going back to a conference, you know, and people start thinking, hey, these are actually really good papers. Why don't we see mm -hmm. whether we can turn this into a volume and have people revisit their presentations and, you know, build them up to complete articles that can be published in the volume. And sometimes that can function very well. That's exactly right. And two questions, and we can tackle them one after the other. But I mentioned we do want to hear about, we, we love hearing from our guests just what inspired them to, as I kind of say, get into philosophy. What There could be a, a serendipitous moment, some kind of fortuitous encounter. There could be a, a first sort of exposure that in your memory, what, what kind of solidifies when you think back the sort of idea or desire for or love for philosophy, literature, academic work? Do you, do you have a, maybe a story that, you can, that, that comes to, to your mind? For me, it was probably a very long process starting, I suppose, with being a pretty ferocious reader in childhood mm -hmm. going into my early and late teenage period some teachers at high school that really inspired me primarily I had literary interests until maybe my early 20s and I I had this idea that I wanted to do something with literature you know you know it, in secret I was 
kind of nurturing the notion that maybe someday I could write something of literary, some sort of literary value. Mm -hmm. So I had that kind of ambition, but to work with, with literature and contemporary literature was something that was certainly on my mind and I wanted to study it. And that was the first thing I, I did study when I started at the Universal Oslo back quite a long time ago. But then I, I suppose um, I had had an interest in philosophy. I had had my family. It was kind of very, the kind of family that would sit down and have these kind of like wild discussions. And I think, and I also have friends both in high school and then as I started studying who were into philosophy and I started reading more and more and then I started studying philosophy. And I suppose um, I had some inspiring teachers both in Oslo and then later in Germany and then in the U.S. where I got my PhD. So I think it was a long process. I don't think I can point to one conversion moment gotcha, when I gotcha. philosophy is my thing. I took an interest in people like Sartre and Camus, you know, mm -hmm. the usual stuff early on and then gradually moved on to Heidegger. I got a copy of Being and Time pretty early on, late, well, late in high school, but I had this idea that if I could crack, crack this one open, then <laughs> all my questions would be answered and I could just like walk away and, you know, be this whatever, you know, wise young person. And uh, right. I right. remember sitting down on the beach in Oslo in the middle of summer and I opened it and I started reading it. And um, did you read it, it in translation? Did you quite work out that way. Were this you reading was an English German translation. Or? Okay, was, English translation. Okay. translation. And I, I, I didn't get very far. Uh, oh, so. yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I felt it had an atmosphere that kind of hooked me and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. made me think, you know, this is worth pursuing. I, you know, I, should, I, sh I shouldn't give up. It's worth going on with it. I felt somehow. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned Sartre and Camus because you're talking about this transition from literature to philosophy. And if, if you think about it, they're, you know, they're two prime examples of thinkers who kind of excel in both categories. Obviously, Camus' novels, philosophical value. I know sometimes they're perhaps underappreciated for their philosophy side, but still it bears witness in terms of the movement of existentialism. But obviously, Sartre kind of participating in and out of either ones, although some of his more philosophical works like what the critique of dialectical reason or being a nothingness perhaps aren't as literary as his other works, but still it's, it still bears merit. That's interesting that those two are the ones that stick out to your mind or are or, or those who participated in the literary arts. It really opened horizons for me starting to read this stuff and also reading poetry. Uh, I mean, I started reading some of the, um, well, classical modernist poets like Eliot, for example, was mm -hmm. very important for me at the time. But what I think I, I experienced was a kind of freedom. You know, it was possible to think these kinds of radical thoughts and formulate them in a way that exceeded somehow the boundaries of what I had normally considered to be how one expressed oneself to see that it was possible to think at this level men it was a little bit like traveling for me i think very early on like growing up in norway we had the possibility of buying these euro train tickets so when i was like 17 i would travel during the summer i would travel for a month 
around Europe with my friends and going to various amazing places in Europe. And um, these kinds of discoveries, I also felt in philosophy and literature that would be really like really opening horizons. And there was a certain kind of freedom that was presented to me, you know, a kind of a freedom of thinking, freedom of intellectual life and the life of the mind, which just hooked me, I think, very powerful. You know, that's something uh, that I have to be a little envious of, because when you talk about spending time at university in Germany, you know, it's for me that that sounds, you know, someone growing up in the United States, that sounds like something exotic. But as you're saying, it's actually is actually something part of your your life, you know, traveling through Europe isn't so out of the ordinary. I think that that's something to be a little envious of, I will say, and it puts a little perspective, this notion of whether it be voyaging or, or some sort of, uh, as a Deleuzian might say, a kind of nomadism, you know, getting, I'm a little envious of that. Well, traveling in the U.S. can be amazing too. But I was really fortunate to be able to travel in Europe at such an early age and um, and basically do it like on my own I mean, with my friends and just mm-hmm. decide where to go and what to see and do was something that I, I really, in hindsight, think of as extremely valuable. And I hope young people can do this still. I mean, mm-hmm. what I enjoy about asking this kind of question of, sort of asking for a a sort of narrativization as a segue into the conversation is that it kind of puts in perspective, let's say the opening chapter of, of your book, which focuses a lot about the role of, of narrative and the ways in which we experience and deal with and frame temporality. I thought that that was an interesting, perhaps methodological opening to the work that helps to set up the rest of it. And specifically, I know that, you know, Cooper and I, we talked a lot about chapter two, but I think it just helps put in perspective the um, the function of narrative, the function of putting in perspective that is essential to any sort of way of dealing with temporality, specifically in the, the mode that you're interested in in modernity. But before we get into the the work, the one that that we both wanted to discuss with you, I would just ask if you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of your research or your interest in in this, you know, in your book on philosophy and temporality from Kant to critical theory. Is this something that you've always been interested in? I know you've published recently on Heidegger and boredom, which is one framework within which temporality is expressed in modern philosophy. But I guess I just wanted to give you a chance to to maybe tell a little bit of your interest going into this writing. Yeah, I think I had kind of two interests in philosophy that prepared me for this. One was this kind of abiding interest in um, how philosophers, especially in the European tradition, have been thinking about modernity. All the way, you know, from the Kant Hegel uh, material and all the way up to the great 20th century European thinkers have all sort of been reflecting on what it is to be, you know, living in modern conditions. Uh, its challenges, its, its differences from pre-modern arrangements and orders. Some of them obviously 
have had a pretty bleak assessment of modernity, as you right. know, uh, Heidegger and Dorno, for example. But I have been interested in these kinds of debates, the debates that Habermas once called the discourse of modernity, mm-hmm. you know, kind of an ongoing discussion about modernity. So, so that was one thing that prepared me for this, because it is this book on temporality that I, was, that I published in 2011. Uh, is an attempt to in part think of temporality in conjunction with questions of modernity, as we'll get back to probably in a moment. And the other was really an interest um, in 19th century philosophy itself and trying to understand what the animating concerns have been. I mean, there's a library of works on the Kant, Hegel, you know, Marx, Nietzsche, Mm-hmm. lineage but I'm interested in finding new ways of looking at these classics and um, it struck me that they all have a kind of opening for the question of temporality and sometimes I, th- I would think most of the times when people encounter these thinkers they think of their contributions to temporality in a relatively narrow sense they think of it when they read Kant, they think of temporality as constitutive of the form of intuitions. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of how we experience the world. It's temporalized. It's all very well. But I try to open this up a little bit and try to also think about other texts by Kant and also Hegel and other you know, Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and so on in terms of how they think about temporality in this kind of modern framework in this mm-hmm. discourse of modernity. So on the one hand, you know, the whole discourse of modernity is such, and on the other, what's going on in this 19th century t- tradition. I mean, in hindsight, I'm kind of thinking, you know, why did you have to make this detour through all of these 19th century philosophers? Wouldn't, why couldn't you just do what you did in the first two chapters, namely just analyze independently these questions of temporality and how they bear on questions of modernization? But I just found that what people like Hegel and Nietzsche and so on and so forth are saying about this is just so powerful and right. interesting and worth revisiting. So that's what kind of made me prepared for this specific book. But time itself, temporality itself, was something that I would say... I started to be attracted to questions about temporality around 2005, in part because I find these questions very intriguing and interesting, worth thinking about. Time itself is a complete chestnut, very, very hard to come to grips with philosophically, and philosophers have grappling with questions of temporality ever since antiquity. Very often, not just in terms of metaphysics, but in terms of questions of how should we live and what is a human life? How should we um, aspire to any kind of good life given various kinds of temporal conditions? So those are some of the things that kind of like prepared me for, for this book. In a certain sense, you could have titled your book Philosophy and Modernity, but on the other hand, it it seems like modernity is, is merely the, not to kind of pun, but the mode or modality within which temporality is kind of 
focused and highlighted where really it's, it's to a certain extent, modernity is kind of the inflection point for a lot of the thinkers that you bring into the dialogue. And, and you're right. I mean, you, you asked this question, you know, you could have continued the mode of thinking that, that you, um, that you highlight in, in chapter two. But on the other hand, you know, I, I think that it's important to bring in these thinkers into the conversation and not to do so could also have the same kind of question that people might be begging to ask is, well, why, why did you leave out 200 years of, of contemplation on this, on this subject? So I'll just say that that in that sense, it's, um, it's definitely important. And there were some, in terms of the thinkers, there's so many places we could start. So I'll, I'll leave that for a moment. But I will say one of the interesting things, because I mentioned your, um, your recent paper showing that you're still thinking about these things, but perhaps have been thinking about them for a long time on Heidegger and boredom. When you uh, discussed boredom, I thought it was really interesting because one of my professors at Emory was Elizabeth Goodstein, and you, uh, you brought up her work because I know she's written at least one book on boredom. I don't know if she's written about it again, but she's obviously written on um, boredom in philosophy and literature and talked about Heidegger. And so seeing some, some of those themes come back was really interesting. And, and definitely, you know, in terms of an effective modality of modernity, we can, it was kind of interesting to see that, that focus, because sometimes we might think modernity is this hyper pace of trying to, to go fast and accelerate. But paradoxically, that Perhaps when we can't seize the Kairos at every moment, it's that in-between time that can bring about the ennui and the boredom. I know that I'm kind of paraphrasing how, you know, your, your footnote details Heidegger's, uh, what is it, and what is called thinking, right? It's, it's that anxiety that causes us to, I think that's how he puts it, right? It's, it's our own unrestfulness and anxiety that causes us to, that causes man or something to what to infinitesimalize time and, and break it down into tens and hundreds and, and thousands. So just thinking about um, the boredom that, that comes with the fast paced life and that they're not contradictory or mutually exclusive. That was definitely a, a big insight for me, or at least when I was reading one of them. Yeah, just to um, note that you mentioned Liz Goodstein's work. I mean, she's a good friend of mine and her work has been quite important for me when I was thinking about this book. I mean, she writes, as you know, uh, and I'm very happy to know that she was your teacher. She wrote a book in which she analyzes the Austrian novelist Musel's Der Mann ohne Eigenschaften, The Man Without Quality, in terms of boredom as a, right. as a kind of loss of meaning that for her has to do with a kind of incessant loss of frameworks of interpretation and value as the pace of modernization keeps increasing and accelerating. And she does this very powerfully, and I certainly got many ideas from, from reading that work. And I think it's worth, I mean, Musel's novel certainly, you know, takes up many literary form, obviously, but it's a, it's a kind of very philosophical novel. It takes up many of these more existential questions to do with temporalization that I try to deal with in the book, but that obviously Musso, you know, manages in this extraordinary way to make vivid 
in the novel. It's really worth reading. We were interested in these questions. I'm glad you brought that up. I know that's something that Cooper and I have with past guests. It's it's been brought up, but hearing it brought up again as this refrain, something to to read. You know, we're always looking for recommendations for, especially for literature, because so, so much, so many times we we kind of focus on the the philosophy side. It's it's important to to remember the the literary, and that was something that was refreshing about the, even though the philosophers are the main so to speak, targets of conversation in, in the books, at least for the chapter headings, you don't shy away from, you know, various literary authors. Obviously, Goethe comes up, uh, Baudelaire, these other thinkers that are either sort of at modernity or sort of in the, the peak of its self-definition, or it sort of reflects upon what you said earlier about your your sort of your interest in literature and how that kind of spurred you on to philosophy. And so you haven't, it's sometimes easy to, to focus on one or the other without bringing them into dialogue. And I thought that was, uh, that, that was good of you to, to remember that obviously they're contemporaneous and, and they share conceptual spaces to a certain degree. And I found that refreshing. In this case, it's definitely worth looking at some of the literary works that and there are plenty of them that do seem to you know bring up various questions to do with temporality you mentioned Baudelaire uh, you know in some of the poems of um, of his he um, he's interested in this particular kind of urban experience of mm-hmm. uh, of the moment that is forever irretrievable you know meeting someone in the, or being exposed to someone in the crowd. This is a kind of an eminently kind of Bolarian type of experience. And Walter Benjamin also is interested in the crowd and the, these moments when um, you're realizing that this face is, this is someone you will never see again, or this moment is forever irretrievable. And um, it's as if modernity or the kinds of social forms we have in modernity sometimes deprives us of the possibility of holding on to things because the speed of uh, well i mean experiences and the Mm -hmm. speed of of transactions tends to be very high people who live in new york i mean the amount of people you are exposed to every single day on the street i mean it's worth pausing for a moment and think about the what the implications of, mm-hmm. of it and, and what it actually means to to um, meet that many people that you will never ever meet again in a day. I think it's good to juxtapose a kind of rationalization through philosophy and the and the discourse about temporality, specifically, you know, certain thinkers that that may or may not wax kind of nostalgic about the loss of whatever we might want to call meta narratives or something like this versus how the mode of literature can can capture that effective move without having to sort of reflect on it in this kind of discursive way and i think that that's one of the reasons why i i find nietzsche to be another one of these thinkers who's able to weave the literary and the theoretical and sort of go in and, and go back out and i know a thinker that you're highly interested in and written on adorno with like at the peak of 
I see him at the peak of his Nietzschean moment in something like Minimal Moralia, right? Where he's able to use those aphorisms to sort of walk the tightrope of, of literature and philosophy. And so I think that that was something too that I appreciated in, in reading your work was thinking about how philosophy is able to reflect on these things and probably make them explicit, but there's something more effectively intense in the liter literary modes of exposition. And that's not something we should forget, right? That we shouldn't always let philosophy have the last word because that might give a false image of the movement of uh, these things under consideration. I mean, sometimes you want to be on the inside of experience and not just talk about the experience from the outside as philosophers mm -hmm. tend to do. And then I think the literary representation is, uh, is definitely extraordinarily helpful in this regard. Now, I know, uh, Coop, we've got some notes here. We talked a little bit, you and I, together about, uh, about Chapter 2, specifically this question of, obviously, the, the rise of commodification. You, you talked to me a little bit about this. It almost seemed like this surprise or terror at the, the disembodied infinity of instants and in, in all of this. I just wanted to get us, give us a chance to dive into some of the notes and perhaps dialogue with Espen about, about that. I'm not sure exactly where to start. <laughs> um, That's fine. <laughs> I did. I mean, I did like this idea that, or this quote here, that time is an ace historical dimension of a physical system, at least to provide some type of at least definition of what time, a certain type of time may be interpreted as. Something that stuck out to me as well was this way that modernity creates a new form of contingency that I suppose mm -hmm, mm -hmm. would perhaps best be described as like a like an anxiety towards the future because there's so much there's not this sort of I guess pre-modern cyclical form of time where things are more reassuring. There's a lot more stability in these sort of rhythms of life and nature, et cetera, and that exchange between the two and how that so maybe talk a little bit about how you see contingency changing from kind of this pre-modern into the modern world. So as you mentioned, I take a kind of pluralist approach to time. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that we can reduce time to just this one category or type or dimension. I think there is definitely something like physical time that people in physics departments, you know, or in the sciences in general use and refer to all the time and there are well-established mm -hmm. theories like einstein's relativity theory for example you know will give you, a, you know, an account of time cosmological time mm -hmm. but i do distinguish that from um, well sometimes i think about that in terms of clock time but right when i talk about clock time i mainly talk about the sociological fact that clocks and chronometers started to be used at some point in history, in the early modernity, they started to play a social role, helping people to organize their lives and coordinate action and uh, structure their actions in various ways. And then I distinguish that kind of objective time from the more socially mediated and sometimes more subjective type of time that I think of as time consciousness or as mm -hmm. lived time. This is a time that we relate to as acting and reflecting and living agents. 
that comes up for us as we start doing things, as we start relating to other people. And that tends to be structured in part through generalized conceptual relations and narratives, but also mm-hmm. more personal narratives that kind of structure the way we experience time. And that's a form of time that explodes the present and points always both towards the future, anticipates the future, and also in various ways uh, recollects and, and holds on to the past as it helps us to interpret ourselves and give us a sense of how we should go about responding to both other people and and the world in general. Contingency um, is, for me, related to modernity insofar as modernity starts to weaken. I'm not an anti-modernist philosopher, but I do think that it is true, as Weber and Adorno and many other philosophers have pointed out, that there's a certain kind of weakening of the, well, the kind of value patterns that help us weave these narratives. One influence is, of course, clock time itself. Clock time itself is itself based on a succession of now points that are kind of neutralized in terms of value. Clock itself doesn't present anything that kind of gives us kind of interpretive pattern for us, but it helps us to structure time and structure our own actions in a kind of neutralized fashion. And that opens contingency because the past doesn't constitute the norms that allow us to understand ourselves in the way that it once did before modernity. Mm-hmm. Modernity is much more future-oriented than pre-modern social arrangements. We think about ourselves in terms of projects that, to a large extent, individualizes us in relation to existing patterns of interpretation and, and value. And that means contingency. Modernity is about contingency. Everything is possible in a certain sense. Nothing pre-given dictates in a certain kind of strong way what we should do, how we should interpret ourselves. And this gives rise to, you know, schools of philosophy like existentialism, for example, mm-hmm. that kind of very strongly, you know, emphasizes the openness of human existence and the generalized contingency of human existence. You might call it freedom, you know, a kind of freedom that we didn't really discover until modernity. What is it? Sartre says we're we're condemned to be free. That way of like yeah. capturing the as as Coop brought up too the, this anxiety that's nascent in the acceleration of technological progress, etc. I mean, and, and you you said that obviously you're not anti modern. You you show this in your way of framing Simpson and the kind of neo Aristotelian attempt to sort of reverse the futural oriented aspect towards sort of recuperating some sort of uh i don't know historical meta narrative that that values the past uh over and above because i I at least appreciated your your use of habermas to kind of bring out this fact that if modernity one of the things that it means is is sort of kind of faithful to the kantian lineage i think of what is enlightenment is is not to not to let our sort of beliefs 
that we might cherish and value and give sort of authority to not to leave those unquestioned. You know, we can't do it all at once. Still, there shouldn't be um, any sacred cows left or any like idols left un, uh, unhammered, so to speak. Right. And, you know, the this kind of Nietzschean note, notion of the twilight of the idols and testing them out and making sure that we don't leave something standing or leave values unquestioned or untested that that would have authority in themselves i I thought that that was that was kind of an interesting way of doing it but i I guess i'll just say and i'll I'll throw it back to you is you frame your concerns but what i like is your relentless pursuit of nostalgia and hunting that out right because the way forward is not to revert back inside or turn turn backwards and and become nostalgic because that's that itself has perhaps even more dangerous consequences that can obviously we can see them in the rise of various fundamentalisms and nationalisms and whatnot i mean in the large scale but it can also be disastrous for and paralyzing for for individuals too so i think that that's part of the um let's just say cautiousness perhaps that i see in your approach the introduction clock time sometime in let's say the early 18th century it started to be the dominant way of temporally interpreting oneself in a social setting you know so in other words people started carrying watches they started consulting what they watches they started worrying about time and not having enough time, mm-hmm. but they also uh, were able to introduce a certain kind of quantitative and also calculative orientation. Thanks to clock time, you know, you could you could plan and organize your actions and the future in a much more exact way than mm-hmm. previously. Not just because your interactions with others could be more minute and precise, but also because the plans you lay can be organized precisely in terms of these quantitative steps. A commercial attitude to problems and life started emerging, you know, with the rise of the bourgeoisie. And Max Weber, I think, was absolutely right in pinpointing the centrality of clock time in the study of Protestantism and what he called inneweltliche Askese, the kind of inner worldly ascesis, this ascetic attitude that he he refers to when he starts thinking about this commercially oriented bourgeoisie that started emerging. And um, these are people who don't really consult how they should act in terms of how in terms of tradition so much, but they're interested in breaking new paths and inventing new ways of acting uh, that, you know, will tend to be more profitable in various ways. I mean, this is also the rise of capitalism. So I am saying in the book that this kind of gives rise to two anxieties. One is the one that we have touched on, at least Gustav Goodstein talks about, and that many other writers are talking about that I think of in terms of a kind of loss of meaning, a loss of pre-given value patterns that simply don't play the same kind of role any longer as you get this new form of self-interpretation. 
with the forward-looking, more quantitatively calculative orientation in modernity. And the second is an anxiety about transitoriness or mm -hmm. transience that starts to emerge uh, both in literary and in philosophical forms of interpretation and self-representation in modernity. The worry that this clock time is a time of nothingness in which present is just transitory, disconnected from the past and uh, without any meaningful relation to the future, just passing by as in the as in the lines I was reading to begin with. That's also a kind of a massive type of anxiety that you see, for example, in Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And both of these kind of experiences of clock time dominating lived time and colonizing lived time give rise to, to anxieties that somehow have to be tackled. And you're right, uh, neo-Aristotelianism is one way of trying to tackle this by simply saying, you know, look, let's just step away from the temporality of the clock. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's try and, for example, around the turn of the millennium, there was this kind of like movement of slow time, you know, right. eat slow, do things more slowly, stop referring to the clock all the time, stop being so busy all the time, cook more slowly, stop eating fast food and pay attention to what you do. And ultimately, this referred to the idea that you could cultivate virtues in a kind of Aristotelian sense that would kind of allow you to step away from clock time and its uh, incessant demands for acceleration and calculation. And I just express, although I have some sympathies with this, obviously, I, I also express some skepticism that society yeah. can just do this collectively. I think maybe you can find some sort of sanctuaries from, from clock time, but I think they're hard to sustain. I think they're hard to, uh, I think it's hard to create allegiance to this kind of pre-modern experiences of time all across the board. So yeah, I, those are kind of my Adornian skepticism about these sanctuaries. And sometimes they can also provide false forms of reconciliation, I think, that we want to be cautious about. So if we're thinking about modernity and economics and about, I think what the strategy is for modernity relative to investment is to say, is to try to get people to invest in the future as opposed to the now. And this goes to time preference, right? Because I'm exchanging immediate pleasure or leisure or whatever that is immediately for a future reward in a logical sense. This should this should benefit society as a whole because people are foregoing their immediate their libidinal investments are not so structured on the now. So we provide a greater stability, a greater, I don't know, perhaps a construction of some some sort of telos or something like that with regard to like a positivism, let's say, with regard to society. It's funny that that sort of backfires right because of mm -hmm. the i think the acceleratory nature that instead of taking these longer and longer views of of society re relative to libidinal investments it's now on the now we're on the quarterly right where it's the reverse now it's like the immediate quarterly return takes precedence over this longer term logic that i think that 
perhaps modern economics was kind of striving for, if that makes sense. From all of this, from a kind of sociological perspective, I don't know if that generates any comments or thoughts on your end, but this is something that kind of jumped out at me after reading the chapter. Yeah, there's a German social theorist, Hartmut Rosa, who has written extensively on social acceleration. And I think he has been able to show quite compellingly that there has been since the onset of, well, processes of modernization in various dimensions in, um, let's say, the late 17th century, accelerations taking place. Life keeps accelerating. The speed of transactions, the speed of information processing, the speed of political and social change in general, it all keeps accelerating. Think of information, for example. It's pretty obvious that we keep processing more and more information. The speed of of the processing or acceleration keeps accelerating all the time, incessantly. As many people have noticed, how are we supposed to be able to process or experience in the kind of the meaning of the the German word, Erfahrung? How are we going to really be able to process and uh, take on board all of this? Walter Benjamin writes about how information undermines, for example, the possibility of genuine experience he has in mind. Social experience in general, but also literary experience. What happens to narratives as we, or the or storytelling is his big question in his essay on the storyteller uh, with the uh, extraordinary kind of like impact of information. The Germans call this erlebnis, and erlebnis, you know, are just these episodes of isolated informational impact on the mind. And as we all know, uh, with phones and with the internet and so on and so forth, yes, we expose ourselves to tremendous amounts of information, but in the next moment, we have forgotten everything. It's just, you know, have, do you really remember everything you scrolled and looked at yesterday? Probably not. But we keep moving forward. We keep accelerating. We keep throwing ourselves into the future, looking for more and more you know, these episodes of experience, which isn't more than quasi-experience because it's connected for all existing patterns right, yeah, of interpretation yeah, yeah. that we can think of. I think that, and this um, creates a certain kind of emptiness, a certain kind of nihilism, and a certain kind of loss of meaning. Modernity is radically futuristic or future-oriented, and I think that is true even more so today than 100 years ago. You know. Just in terms Especially of commerce. Yeah. Just in terms of commerce, I mean, to I'm 40, and to just go, you know, looking at the historical development of commerce, you know, when I was born, you might call Sears catalog, place an order. Then we have mid late 90s, we have websites we can order from. Now we have our mobile phones, so we can buy now with the click. So even right. in that span, you can see like this tremendous compression of time express itself there. Absolutely extraordinary. And obviously that does impact people's um, understanding of themselves and their understanding of uh, what they can do with themselves in the world and how they should meaningfully relate to other people. It is going to impact on on this, certainly. And um, I try to argue in this book that we um, 
perhaps need to cultivate a new way of um, being able to be attentive, be attentive to new things rather than just having them pass by us in the way that, for example, the internet is constantly imposing upon us a kind of norm of transitoriness, of having her lameness or experiences just passing by in an endless stream of consciousness without really being able to be attentive. But how should we cultivate this form of attentiveness? It's certainly not easy to think how we should do that, given the media in which we experience the world today, especially, of course, the internet. There's not enough time to collectively process any of the information at all. So it just picks up the speed, but there's no actual meaning behind it. That's that's right. Yes. Yes. I think the anxiety that modernity generates, I think about this a lot, is how it brings up or it intensifies the notion of wasting time, even relative to enjoyment, right? Because now, let's say you go on a vacation, you have your weekend, etc. You can now feel guilty that you haven't achieved whatever projects you wanted to get done over the weekend or on your vacation, you didn't get to do everything that you set out to do. So there's almost this kind of weird relationship where it's an anxiety of like, as a being, I have this finite amount of time. I have to be, I'm pressured to be wise in how I invest it. But even when I invest in something that is a waste in quotations, that can still generate this guilt that I have this kind of productive pressure that is placed on me. And I don't know if that would be time that's pressing pressing us or what that force would be, but I, I don't know. I just think that's interesting relative to anxiety and, and contingency because we don't know. It's this question of like, you know, our contemporary moment. It's like, do I need to invest in my future or will climate change, you know, devastate society, right? Like what's that time scale <laughs> look like? That, right. You know, how am I going to invest my in my future? Am I going to buy real estate along the coast or in an area that has a very arid climate or is projected to have one, etc.? So these questions become a lot more pressing and dominate. Just to piggyback, and I'll throw it back to, to Espen, you know, this question of clock time, I kept thinking of the doomsday clock, which is supposed to be this representation, right, of humanities or even life in general's uh, viability and there is this sense in which that is in the background too looming more and more heavily in terms of as you said yourself has been if modernity is characterized by its futurality with that hanging over us you know impending it does tinge that with it with a with a new kind of anxiety right it's it, maybe it's maybe it's, it's actually the same anxiety just taken to a fever pitch or it could be a perhaps it's it's crossed the threshold where it's no longer about degrees, but it is actually different in kind. And if I had to qualify something as postmodern, perhaps that anxiety could qualify it other than a degree of acceleration. But I guess that would sorry, Coop, I, I said I was gonna piggyback and I kind of hijacked it. Anyway, that's but I'll, I'll let you I'll let you respond. You're on to something important here. Uh if you think of sort of classical modernity, late 18th century, 19th century, most of 20th, 20th century or first half of 20th century, this idea of the future as having a kind of priority, both in people's private lives and also collectively, uh, socially, 
I think seems to have been absolutely central. And time, thanks to the clock, could be commodified in ways that it couldn't before modernity and the prevalence of clock time. So we had this kind of like questions about time is something you invest in, but on the other hand, there's a goal down there somewhere that you want to obtain. So we want to move through this commodified time as soon as possible. But then on the other hand, it is commodified. So in a certain sense, you never have enough time and you're worried that you will always need more time because time has a certain kind of commodified importance for you. You know, I think some of these anxieties have receded somewhat. I mean, if you think collectively today, as you, as you say, the awareness of the possible kind of crises that seem pretty likely to occur in the 21st century, climate crisis in particular, but also people's thinking about the nuclear possibility of nuclear war and things like that. I think there's a certain kind of loss of collective futurity. Think of the great Marxist projects of the 20th century. They were extraordinarily emphatically oriented towards the future. You know, somewhere down the line, a new form of subjectivity and a classless society would emerge and all our kind of structural deep problems would disappear, you know, but it would be a future. It would be in the future and people would have a utopian relationship to the future. Hope in a certain kind of meaningful sense that this would in fact occur if we just did the right things in the present. And I think nowadays we no longer have that. There's this massive loss of utopian mm-hmm. consciousness um, collectively in Western societies these days. It's just so, I think, palpable. Now, I think individually, um, it may be less palpable, but I'm inclined to think that some of the things that the theorists of postmodernity said about this, for example, Jameson, that there's a certain kind of preoccupation with the now in late capitalist postmodern Mm -hmm. societies. I think that's pretty clear. It's more difficult for us to formulate structurally meaningful projects going into the future than it used to be, in part because of the acceleration that we just talked about. It's more difficult to predict how things are going to be down the line for us as individuals, but also the amount the amount of information just makes it more difficult to make plans for us as individuals going into the future. And thirdly, perhaps something to do with commodification itself and um, what it means to relate to the world through commodification, which in a sense frozen is a kind of frozen type of reality and that doesn't quite let the individual make plans in the way it may have been possible in societies where people related less immediately through to commodities that were just given to you and presented to you as, you know, what one ought to do in the present. If you're in the shopping mall, you don't really make big plans for the future for yourself, but you are in a sense mesmerized by all the things that are presented to you in the present. I like what you said about sort of the falling out of fashion of, of utopia, but it does seem 
perhaps that's it's almost like the flip side of nostalgic to be utopian is to be almost like nostalgic in reverse or something like this. I don't know exactly the best way to formulate it, but it, it does feel like utopian now is almost, or maybe it's always had that tinge as though it's fantastical or, or the kingdom of heaven or whatever. Right. Right. On earth, etc. The kingdom of ends or something like this, where it's, it seems far fetched or it's, it seems unpractical or something like this. So even the notion of practicality, even that, in that, purposive rational mode of view dominates over you know something that obviously can't be done you know in a moment in a moment's notice but does take this as you said this sort of more long-term projective mindset and given well i guess that's that's another affect we can think of given just the the dread of or the impending quote-unquote doom of of the doomsday clock that seems to, you know, be the obstacle in the way of these longer term, futurally oriented, projected quasi-utopian or whatnot visions. So I know that we don't necessarily have to make this all (laughs) about a bad vibe, but we should at least be realistic that that's one of the aspects of sort of you know, if we want to call this our modern condition, that's still, that's definitely an aspect that's hard not to think about. And um, I know that every few months there are new articles about how close we are to the precipice or, or what we sort of need to do and or whether we've already crossed the precipice. That type of uncertainty itself is is also kind of difficult to digest, right? It's, there there are... You know, and obviously there's there's many, and I can't really even blame them, people who would just say that's propaganda, right? Because it's much easier to to function in life and to make plans. Obviously, there's there's a certain arrogance in any plan making, right? Because you know, providence can ruin those plans. But I, you know, to to continue living, you know, without. Well, I guess metaphorically hiding your head in the sand and not dwelling on these things, that's how most people go about their daily lives. And I'm including myself in that because, you know, to function, you know, that sometimes too has to at least momentarily be repressed or or just sort of ejected from consciousness. I didn't yeah. mean to ramble a little bit, but I just wanted to throw that out. And uh, No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm associating here, but, uh, you know, I think she sort of nailed some of this when he said you know the kind of major demand of contemporary capitalism is enjoy enjoy you know here or now just go out and get stuff and enjoy which is very different obviously from the from the main imperative of classical modernity which was repress hold on and don't enjoy yet enjoyment will be gratification down the line once you've deserved it but you got to work first you have to be purposive rational and then you will deserve it then you will be able to enjoy but once you get what you want then that's another just commodity that has to be invested something else has to be invested so you constantly throw yourself into new projects but nowadays with a consumer-oriented capitalism it's enjoyment and you're right i mean we we are largely forgetful of, of these things that may well be in store for us. 
yes, we do read them in the newspaper. But I think in our actions, we don't pay attention much yeah. to this. Otherwise, we would have changed radically what we do every day. Right. In terms of consumption and, and the like. If we might switch gears a little bit, I kind of wanted to, I, I have this notion of uh, not the labor theory of value, but the time theory of value, because the way that you discuss time sort of becoming this form of nihilism, it reminded me of all time gets flattened out and is commodified such that there's a uniformity. It becomes then money is just a representation of of this time, of this commodified time right it's an abstracted from from that time because i think if you're speaking of a criticism of capitalism i think that if you frame it relative to time it's a much more powerful argument than let's say labor power right because then you can start to think okay as a subject i have a finite amount of time that i can invest my time for me in my own internal market my time is invaluable it, you can't put a price on my life Whenever one is negotiating one's labor recompensed or what have you, you're never operating from an equal footing because you have scarce time, but society's demands do not, right? Society's demands are infinite. And so that's what markets are trying to calculate is, is ultimately time. And I think this would even go – Taylor, you would recall better – some of this reminds me a little bit of our conversation with John Rofe about markets, right? And kind Ooh. of the, the black swan events and trying to predict those events. That's just something that came to mind as well. I don't know if you recall anything that would be germane to this conversation. So much of our conversation about, about that was whether or not black swans can be predictable. They, they obviously can be sort of explained in hindsight. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to reconstruct sort of that that sort of argument in terms of the market. But I'll let I'll let Espen sort of respond to to the the bulk of your point, Lynn. Well, if I understand you correctly, you're thinking about how markets. Well, just in terms of labor, right? So, at me as the laborer, what I'm really selling, I think, is in a way, I guess, I'm selling my you know my life force. But that force, I suppose, or that labor force is really comes down to time, right? I need to work X amount of hours to reach, to reproduce myself. That's at the bedrock, the calculation that's being made by the individual. And I think via the market, the market is trying to calculate, yes. okay, times. And this also goes to investment as well, right? Because, you know, investments mm -hmm. mature, you know what I mean? So the different scales of you know mortgages right you have a 30 year mortgage blah 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 so all of this calculative i don't know how to even put a pin on that yeah. per se but so i just think that time is kind of the the hidden thing the sort of base mm -hmm. that all of this is predicated on but people don't really think about it in this way yeah absolutely and i think you're right to point to marx as a kind of pioneer when it comes to thinking about time and social time because labor power is defined in terms of time, as you rightly point out from Marx. That's what the employer buys. You know, he buys your time, mm -hmm. he invests in your time, and um, calculates a certain outcome from the investment in your time. That's how exploitation becomes possible for Marx. Yes. And of course, you as an employee also invest time. 
And certainly, yes, and labor has to be understood in terms of time and investment in time. Going to college, and, going to trade school, um, yes. you know, taking classes, et cetera, investing in one's mm-hmm. own productive capacity. But yes. you're also making a, a wager, right, in terms of your time. So, and again, yes. so all of the pressure, I guess, is transposed from the more collective forms of pre-modern civilization to this extremely individualized thing where all of the responsibility for determining your future is entirely on your shoulders. <laughs> Although you are yes. still within the greater social that constrains your movement yes. as well, right? Yes. So there is this formal temporal dimension to this, but I'm trying to argue in the book that formal determination, basically, you know, clock time, objective time, is always in some kind of dialectical relation to, to lived time. Or you mentioned, for example, education, which is one of the examples I bring up in order to kind of illustrate the narrative form that lived time tends to take, that as you keep educating yourself, you may take seminars, you have a certain goal in mind, maybe you want to become a medical doctor. And um, there's a certain temporality to everything you do in college. You know, you take, there's a certain anticipatory dimension and there's a certain kind of pre-given dimension having to do with how things have been done that you have to understand that sets up a normative background or basis for what you do. And there are certain promises that you relate to in terms of what can and cannot be achieved given certain choices you make and so on and so forth. All of this is sort of structured in terms of the overall narrative that you see yourself in as someone in pursuit of a particular kind of educational goal, you know, going to college. And that creates a certain kind of meaning to what you do as you start disentangling the various dimensions of this kind of lived time, the narrative structure starts to make sense to you. But yes, underneath all of this, there's also a colder, calculative, more clock-oriented fact about what it is to get educated, in which you make a certain kind of investment that you want to pay off, and so on and so forth. And when you see young people today, well, I shouldn't say young people, but everyone, you know, with their CVs, and you start asking, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Well, I'm building my CV. It's instrumental, it's calculative, and it's related to a certain way of dealing with temporality, which is disenchanted, and ultimately, I would say, less meaningful than a form of temporality that can spring out from a more full-fledged kind of deep narrative understanding of what you do. I was just thinking, you know, back to this question of labor power, labor time, how something like fossil fuels Because what fossil fuels allow due to their energy density is basically compressed time because really it's compressed work, right? It's like with regard to physics, right? Physical work. So you're compressing the amount of physical work that can be done, right? Because obviously burning a barrel of oil versus horses or humans pulling something, right? So that fuel is what allows for the acceleration of modernity to occur because it's just a incredibly dense form of energy that compresses our ability to do work and allows us to develop in a way that even outstretches, I think, the ability of our human systems to 
comprehend or to develop a society or structure that can sort of navigate it, right? And I think maybe that's what the crisis of modernity is, is that we have outstripped our productive capacity so far that it's completely become detached from our ability to control it or grasp it or it escapes us, right? We can't we can no longer sort of comprehend. We can no longer really have a unified vision of a future. Everything is um, this sort of decentralized and fragmentary soup, I, like, I suppose. I do think that we are, to some extent, victims of uh, modernity's incessant acceleration and future-orientedness. We are paying the price now with the ecological crisis and with the climate crisis. And fossil fuels, of course, are the central, that's the culprit, central culprit. But it's not just any culprit. It is exactly, as you say, related to uh, the achievement of speed and ever higher speeds and acceleration that moderns have been demanding ever since the invention of uh, technologies based on, you know, based on fossil fuels. But we're paying the price now and we're sort of on that train that Benjamin is talking about in this historical philosophical or fragments, that train that that keeps you know moving ever so quickly without any kind of emergency break being available to us, it seems. We're trying desperately to find that emergency break, but it's nowhere to be found. I wonder if there's just a pressure to accelerate due to something to do with energy becoming less hitting the threshold, upper threshold max of our energy, like our energy consumption, because I think there's a there's this sort of graph or um, gradient between on one end. Let's say you might have something like a concept of what uh, what's the thermodynamic, con- uh, not ennui, um, yeah. entropy. Entropy, right? So I think acceleration is a a way to mitigate entropy, right? So if you can keep keep speeding up and speeding up and speeding up, you sort of are in that position due to entropy, right? Because eventually entropy will catch up to you. You have to consume more and more energy to escape the accumulation of entropy. As you accelerate, then the returns on that investment in energy begin to diminish and you hit a crisis point. And then things sort of catabolize and fall apart. I will say I love that you made the uh you made the slip of the tongue saying ennui instead of entropy. So that was but that kind of encapsulates your your point and hits all of these themes that we've kind of been discussing, you know, especially given this notion of disenchantment that Weber talks about that kind of we're talking about, you know, in in all these conversations and and just a sort of run with what you're saying, Coop. I mean, one of the things that I think about, you know, with this talk about disenchantment is there's also all, all this talk about re-enchantment that we've sort of seen recently. And the only thing that off the top of my head that I kind of think there's a false image of re-enchantment of the world is, you know, besides the things we've talked about, like a nostalgic return to some sort of conservative authoritarian past or whatnot is is the flourishing of new age aspects now obviously there could be here and there forms of holistic medicine or or whatnot meditation etc that can that can help certain individuals but there there's the tendency of new ageism to be itself this 
new trendy commodity, right? The, it, it is like, it's the most saleable because it, it seems to claim to give us back this thing that we've inevitably lost. So I just wanted to bring that up. I know that that's not exactly what's being theorized by serious people talking about re-enchantment in a way that avoids these things. But I feel like the main commodity of re-enchantment is this new age form that I think is, is also pretty insidious and can take advantage of all of our, our sort of worst fears and insecurities that we've been discussing. Yeah, I think you have in mind a certain kind of packaged, commodified uh, form of experience, which is supposed to, yeah, present the world to you as though re-enchantment is possible. And um, like you, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of that. But that said, I think there may well be aesthetic experiences in which there's a certain I mean, if they, if they're adequate, if they're successful, if there's a certain kind of attention to particularity and expressivity that can um, provide, if not re-enchantment, then at least a kind of connection to something that, on the one hand, is genuine, genuinely other than yourself, not just a reflection of yourself. And on the other hand, something which isn't just a category of something, but which has a real independent existence that you can relate to and perhaps find some meaning in, in relating to. I'm thinking, for example, of, well, artistic experiences like music, painting, literary experiences, you know, mm -hmm. in which there can be these kinds of opening towards a form of otherness that can provide meaning that doesn't really fall into the new age category but which I mean Adorno for example writes about these moments in Proust or even in Beckett that are moments of um, suddenness in which you break out of the kind of calculative uh, everyday instrumental way of relating to reality and uh, it seems to me that it's worth Thinking about these kinds of experiences, I think they are present in most people's lives in some ways. Going back to this temporality and the kind of acceleratory mechanism, going back to our discussions of Leotard's libidinal economics and the not only the Taoist erotics part of it due to like investments, libidinal mm -hmm. investments, but also like the cheesemonger, if you'll recall the story, right? And this goes to my kind of discussion of, of entropy versus return on the hyperinflation. Investment. Exactly, right? because the cheesemonger okay. has to he okay, so currency currency's inflating. The cheese has more value as a commodity, but he so he's constantly having to run back and forth with the cheese and the and acquire more <laughs> money, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that <coughs> was just something that popped in my head to put a stamp on that kind of notion that I had about time and entropy. Yeah, the volatility is that aspect in, in the in the story, yeah, it's the volatility of the money and the hyperinflation. That the, waste, the, time. There's, right. Yeah, there's this worry that the money he's selling the cheese for is not worth, you know, won't be worth as much as he just, uh, as he just got. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely hitting home in terms of, in another sense, the way in which 
we know, at least in the States, won't speak for globally, but we know that, um, especially even since the pandemic, the rise in, in prices, we can call it inflation, but it obviously has nothing to do with the amount that workers are being paid. And so that goes back to kind of what Coop's already speaking of. It's just we're moving from questions about energy sources to this question about labor. And uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of rambling here. And I'll, I will say, um, Espen, please feel free to respond to, to Coop. And once you do, I do want to give you the chance to talk about your current research, especially since you're on sabbatical and perhaps what we can expect from you in the near future. But I'll throw it over to you. <laughs> I'm not sure I have any further things to contribute with totally fine. work and entropy. I wonder whether entropy really applies at this level, does it? I mean, I mean, it does apply in a kind of objective physical sense, but is it something that we can actually experience? It's a good question. If you read Thomas Pynchon, you will find you know some interesting representations of people who, in a sense, are exposed to the consequences of entropy, right? A kind of steady movement towards chaos and, and everything dissolves ultimately. And yeah, what am I working on now? I'm, I've, um, I have had a project recently which bears some similarity to this one in that I have been interested in modernity. I have been interested in the 19th C philosophers um that's been centering on religion hmm. that's another mm -hmm. kind of peripheral somewhat peripheral interest in the 19th century but it's important in my view nevertheless both in kant and hegel hegel is definitely a very religious christian thinker kant has a writes his philosophy of religion as a very old man and then you get the generation of critics starting with people like feuerbach and then marx and obviously Nietzsche. And what I do in this book, which is going to come out with uh, University of Chicago Press next year, I'm trying to look at these people's, these philosophers' interest in religion from the vantage point of both critique, I mean, they're all sort of criticizing a kind of philosophical understanding of religion, a kind of metaphysical understanding of religion. But they're also, and I think more interestingly, this is, well, on the one hand, there's this kind of enlightenment criticism of religion. But on the other hand, they're all interested in what you, what you can rescue from religion. They're all worried about secularization proceeding too quickly and thoughtlessly, leaving nihilism in its wake. And they want to see, you know, is there anything that we can kind of rescue from religion without having to buy into it? the ontotheological premises of traditional rationalist philosophy. And um, yeah, in Kant, you find a kind of philosophy of hope related to religion. He mm -hmm. criticizes ontotheology. He says we cannot have that. It's not possible to believe rationally in the claims of religion any longer, but we can still hope. And hope is kind of, a, kind of a, what can still be important for us. For him, it takes the form of morality, a kind of moral hope. Hegel is also very interesting in that he sort of makes everything temporal, absolute. 
he he secularizes the claims to absoluteness and sees modernity as secular in in one sense, but also in another sense wedded to a certain claim to absoluteness that religion once uh, claimed to possess. You get Feuerbach and then you get Nietzsche, who's kind of perhaps the most interesting figure. And Nietzsche, you know, postulates that God is dead and mm-hmm. uh, we're living in the age of nihilism. Modernity is the age of the lack of orientation. But then again, he keeps going back to the possibility of some sort of retrieval of a pre-Christian, pre almost prehistorical way of understanding religion. The figure of Dionysus, you know, is important right. for Nietzsche throughout, which is a figure of, of ecstasy, of transgression, and of a certain form of exposure to the holy and the sacred, which is extremely radically understood by Nietzsche. You know, he wants nothing of Christianity. He wants an experience of transgression, which is completely different from all of that. And... Um, I'm interested in these moments of rescue and recuperation mm-hmm. of the religious in this book. How is that compatible with modernity? I worry that Nietzsche perhaps completely calls on us to step outside of the framework of modernity. I wonder how that's possible. But at least those are the kind of like interests and topics of, of that book, looking at the various ways in which this recuperation or, or rescue mission becomes uh, thematized in these thinkers. I just want to point out for the audience that you do discuss this a bit in one of the Nietzsche chapters relative to Dionysus and Mm -hmm. this notion of the God to come, which kind of reminded me of a little bit of, Mayasu talks about this as well in his work. I just wanted to flag that for the audience. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it has to do with acceleration and the emergence of, of a kind of instrumental formal instrumental attitude towards reality that the process of secularization can sometimes be very painful and sometimes be accelerated to the point of leaving people with just a big question mark. And I think some of these philosophers have kind of pointed to ways of rescuing some of what religion was offering people that can, in a sense, kind of slow down the process of secularization and make make us land in kind of more soft ways, perhaps, than uh, is otherwise the case. Some of the symptoms of insanity in modernity, for example, the rise of fascism, and nowadays are issues with uh, political right-wing populism, for example, you know, may have mm-hmm. something to do with the speed of secularization, that people find these substitutes for religion that can be very dangerous politically and maybe we should think more about how we can accept that secularization brings about a certain kind of nihilistic loss and uh, think about ways to rescue moments of religiosity that can be that don't have to commit ourselves to something regressive like fascism right i think It can be denied that elements of Nietzschean thinking ended up in German fascism. I think that's true. But I also think there are elements of Nietzsche thinking that perhaps did not get called upon in that kind of massive, regressive project that was fascism. There is a selective reading of, of Nietzsche that can easily 
that can be weaponized in that way. And yes, but I do think it's interesting, right? What Coop brought up mentioning to the audience and what you're, you're discussing. I mean, obviously, as you said, there's a continuity between the book we discussed today and this one that, that is coming out, you know, very soon. And I can see, you know, as you mentioned, Dionysus Christ, that signing that he does towards the end of his life, you know, call it madness or not, but there is this, you know, that is an interesting yoking of, of the names and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I just think about the the process of transvaluation. It sounds like that's that's something that that you're sort of discussing, and and that sounds definitely like something that I would I would love to read about because you're right. There is this sense, and this is kind of what I was getting at with the reenchantment. There is the sense in which reenchantment can perhaps go ways that aren't merely new age commodification or a return to regressive authoritarian types of religion that old time religion or whatever there there has to be modes that could be whether we call it spirituality or or what there could be this these modes that get rid of the the pre-modern or let's say pre-critical religion right there's there's got to be modes of it yeah. that, that can be salvaged or as you said rescued so i i find that very fascinating I think Nietzsche was thinking very, very deeply about this. And uh, there's also the question of authority in Nietzsche, you know, how, who are we supposed to listen to and how are we supposed to listen to them? And how is legitimacy and, and authoritative meaning created? And he certainly has a view that there are these exceptional individuals, these individuals capable of, as you say, transvaluation, radical. Mm-hmm re-evaluations of uh, the conditions of our lives that are supposed to lead us, in a sense. I still think that is somewhat, well, I think it's somewhat problematic in that it's very based on the idea that individuals can kind of do this through some sort of extraordinary act of will. I'm more interested in let's say, modes of attentiveness and listening and, and receptiveness, receptivity. Maybe there's a certain kind of streak of Heideggerianism in me that I think that we have to also be able to pay attention to mm-hmm. phenomena as they lend themselves to us and figure out how we can relate to them in a meaningful way. And we cannot do that just through these extraordinary acts of self-resolve that nature seems to cherish so much. That's a great point. And um, I suppose, is there anything else you would like to share about any other research project or something you would like to do? Because I want to give you the last word before we before we sign off. I'm currently writing an essay on the French Revolution and on Hegel's take on the French Revolution. Right. Okay. And again, I'm struck by some of how some of the same themes come up. Hegel sees, you know, the French Revolution has kind of culminating with the Jacobin reign. And the Jacobins are these kind of radical modernists who want to break with the past, you know, and the Thermidorian year zero is supposed Mm -hmm, to start. mm -hmm. Yes, they had some Roman references and ideals, but they were supposed to be used for the sake of throwing oneself into the future in the most Mm -hmm. radical way possible. And, uh, Hegel thinks that that leads to 
necessarily leads to violence or that's where terrorism and fanaticism has its kind of origins. I'm very struck by that. And I'm also struck by how Hegel tries to think about the French Revolution in a more comprehensive manner. He wants to think, what can we do in, in Germany? How can we, how can we um, bring this kind of the legacy of the revolution to Germany? And when he thinks about that, he thinks about more than the, the Jacobins. He's interested in a more pervasive form of cultural re- revolution that would es- escape that kind of cold fanaticism and radicalism that he sees with, with the Jacobins. But uh, it would take me a while to kind of <laughs> tell you what I think about that. But I do see that some of the same themes come up for me. How can we be, be modern without? falling into these traps of modernization. That leaves food for thought to continue thinking about the conversation we had today. And I just want to thank you, Espen, for your, you know, your generosity with your time. Not to, again, pun, I guess that's, <laughs> that's the theme, but you were very generous with your time. Thank you for your time and, and thank you for agreeing to come and uh, share your, your research and your scholarship with us. I really appreciate it. And um, As do I. we're both... Very glad to have gotten to spend time with you. And uh, we're going to stay on after signing off just to talk about what we're going to be doing next week. So feel free to, to sign off whenever you're, uh, whenever you feel, feel fit to do so. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for a really interesting conversation. I'm going to follow your work for the future. And, and yes, I certainly enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. Excellent. Well, we'll be in touch next week when this episode will will be live and we'll let you know as soon as it hits the airwaves. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon and go and enjoy the, your, uh, your Sunday <laughs> evening. And thank you so much. Thank you. You too. Take care. Once Bye. again, thanks to Espen Hammer for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity including the ultimate form of security, which is unconscious. In one state of things, in two of violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Logotomized people, as in a block work orange.